Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy New Year, everybody. How are you? We did it. <laughs> Just when we didn't think we could get through 2020, we did. Uh, if nothing else, that was a milestone of last year getting through it. <laughs> a whole year, I know. And the battle isn't won. That's the thing. Let's celebrate getting through the year as best as we can. Low expectations. I mean that in the most loving, positive way. And it's a new year now. And we're going to kind of reorient our thinking. Why? Well, the vaccines, you know, crack a lack and they're going, they're doing their thing. But we still have a lot of time before the wider population has access to that. So again, we got to just remember we're in a pandemic. I know it's not the first thing we want to hear entering the new year, but we have to be reminded of that. So we're still social distancing, wearing our masks. But we're also looking back at the year that we just had. Now, those that have, you know, are familiar with my work know I'm not a big fan of the New Year's resolutions. But I do like the idea of us always using... Um, um, newness, right? Moving away from something, whether it's a relationship or a job or a friendship or our past year and looking at who we were. I think that's what's meaningful. I think that's what can be beneficial in, in leaving something. Um, who were we? Who do we want to be again? I say that every time someone leaves a relationship. Once they've mourned loss, if there's even a loss to mourn, we talk about who were you in that relationship. That's the best way to learn about ourselves. Looking back, what are the parts of myself that I don't ever want to engage in again? What are the parts of myself or the behaviors that I don't want to ever bring forward into something new? And then the inverse. What are the parts of myself that I'm proud of? What did I learn about myself that I absolutely want to take forward into a new relationship? Well, we can do that with the year as well. Last year was hard for a lot of us, dealing with employment stress, financial stress, health stress. People are working from home. Children are going to school from home. There's a lot happening. We're losing loved ones, right? Watching death, the, de the numbers of deaths rise. But um, who were we last year? right? We talked a lot about self-care versus coping mechanisms. Self-care are the things that we engaged in that made us feel better, nourished. Coping mechanisms are, hey, anything we engage in, positive or negative, that helped us really get through. Um, what coping mechanisms do we want to leave behind? Which ones do we want to take forward? Do we need to drink less or not drink at all? Do we want to maybe have more movement brought into our lives? What do we learn about ourselves? So take some time and really look at last year, and look at the positives and the negatives, uh, what you learned about yourself, both good and bad, and kind of really set a plan. That's mental health, knowing what you're working on. I know someone is working on themselves when they can tell you what it is they're working on. If someone says, yeah, I'm working on myself, and you're like, great, what does that mean? What are you monitoring? What are you tracking? What are you engaging in? If they have no answer, then they're not working on themselves, right? So we wanna just use last year to say, what are the coping mechanisms I wanna leave behind? What are the newfound hobbies that I wanna continue to engage in, right, or, or bring forward? forward into the new year and really solidify them into my life. Um, that's how we kind of use that in that positive, positive, positive way. Because um, we're reminding ourselves, just like we say, you know, a bad moment doesn't need to be a bad day. A bad day doesn't need to be a bad week. Last, last year, maybe not being the best doesn't mean it has to bring itself into the new year, right? We get to really kind of reorient that and change that. What are the relationships we want to leave? What are the relationships we want to renew? That's something that was really meaningful for me personally last year is reconnecting with people that I've been thinking about, that I've missed, 
or going deeper into certain relationships, especially the ones that I didn't tend to have enough time for. And that's something I'm taking into the new year, making more time for joy and pleasure and also socialization. I definitely let last year and even the year before I let work and COVID, understandably the COVID part, but I let some of my uh, multiple job responsibilities because I have a lot of different factors in my career kind of take precedence over some of my social relationships. And I want to reorient that. Um, also just using the concepts of joy and meaning, right? That's happiness. Happiness is about centering our lives as, as best as we can to the extent that we can in all the different things that give us joy and meaning. That's where, that's where happiness comes from. It's a byproduct of that. So we don't actually seek happiness directly, right? It's very fleeting when we do that. It can be us biting into something delicious, going on a trip, but happiness in a more sustainable, ubiquitous way, ever present, kind of woven in everything is about, again, centering our lives with joy. I'm sorry, centering our lives with purpose and meaning, right? Looking at our week or our work day and saying, did that feel like I did something meaningful there? Am I utilizing the parts of myself that are most important? Because that's part of the happiness scales is work that's full of meaning. And if your job doesn't have that, you find that elsewhere, but also utilizing what they call your signature strengths, the parts of you that are most meaningful, whether meaningful, whether it's your athleticism or your intellectualism, or maybe even it's your erotic capital, it's your body, it's your beauty, it's your sexuality. All those things are appropriate things to build a career upon. But most importantly is using the strengths that mean the most to you and using them towards something that makes you feel like you did something of meaning and value, you know? So that's kind of what I hope for us in the new year. More of that. And we'll continue to talk about that on Loveline. I mean, that's what I'm here for. I'll, con I'll constantly remind you what to be oriented towards thinking about. But again, just kind of take some time right now and say, again, looking back at last year, what do I want to leave behind and what maybe do I want to take forward? And for some of you, you might say, I want to stay where I'm at. I want to continue to kind of drop the bar, go easy on myself, not have big expectations. And that's fine too. Um, sometimes that is the most radical revolutionary thing is saying, I'm content. I like where I'm at. I want more of that. Not everything has to be these big, profound changes, right? Those other little things matter a lot. As always, y'all know how the game goes. Question of the Night is up on our Loveline IG page in the stories. Got a great show planned for you, including an interview with Ian Jenkins. He wrote the book, Three Dads and a Baby. Yes, that's about a polyamorous couple that got the first birth certificate to include all three fathers' names. That's right, most birth certificates, it's just... Two people, sometimes hard enough getting two dads or two moms on there. How about getting three dads officially, legally on a birth certificate? We'll be talking about that and uh, doing some DMs. You're listening to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, it's a new year. So uh, we want to start it off with some positivity and some inspiration again getting your entire family legally recognized on your child's birth certificate is a mandate for a family to feel really cohesive and um, also respected. But what happens when you're in a polyamorous relationship and there are three fathers? We're going to be interviewing Ian Jenkins about his new book, Three Dads and a Baby. Ian Jenkins, uh, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. So I was super excited to have you on for a multitude of reasons, not just because of the topic of your book, but also because of the psychocultural impact that such a topic has. So for those that are not familiar with your book yet, Three Dads and a Baby, uh, give them a little bit of your pitch. What is this book about? Yeah, sure. So um, I have a partner uh, going on 18 years now, and we had a third uh, join us uh, going on eight years now, and we started a family. And uh, that's not entirely unusual. There's lots of polyamorous families out there that have kids from previous relationships or that developed during that relationship. But we were the first to get uh, a, a birth certificate that recognizes all of us as legal parents at the child's birth. So we're the first poly family um, with a, to be legal parents of a, of a new child. First off, congratulations. Um, here at Loveline, we love normalizing all the diverse uh, creative ways that love, uh, gender, sexuality can exist. And what I'm thankful for is not both that you've created that precedent, but also writing the book, because I work with a lot of individuals that are poly themselves, considering opening up. And one of the first things they worry about is, will they be taken seriously as a unit in a family? Um, so what I think is really profound, first, congratulations. Anyone that can be in a relationship for 17 years is phenomenal. So well done on that end. Um, 
your your third partner, Jeremy, uh, has been with the two of you for eight years. So just talk a little bit about that. What was it like being in a non-traditional relationship in terms of friends and family members' responses? Well, you know, I had some introduction to this because when I was growing up as a gay kid, I thought that I might never be able to have a normal relationship because I didn't know if I'd ever be able to be out or to celebrate Christmas with my family, with my partner present. And the world has changed a tremendous lot. And so it was a little similar introducing everyone to us being polyamorous and not just um, gay, but really not that different. And we're actually pretty boring people. So everyone was like, oh, okay, another nice person in the home. And that was about it. So families were um, pretty welcoming. Uh, Jeremy comes from a very conservative religious background. And so his parents had a little bit more adjustment to do, but now everyone is completely on board. And of course, nothing pleases parents more than having grandchildren. So that's the ticket. That's right. That's all they care about. Um, I like you using the word boring because I think some people misinterpret polyamory, open relationships, throuples, all the diverse creative ways that we can be in relationships as being about sex or hypersexuality, when in fact it's about love, care, commitment, trust, right? Pretty much. Um, and uh, we're very ordinary home when people come over and spend time with us or have dinner in the pre-COVID era. Um, you know, that's that's mostly, I think, what relationships are, is trying to figure out what to watch on TV and what you're going to have for dinner. And we do that. There's just one more person in the house. So He's the tiebreaker. We all need a tiebreaker. That actually, that's actually something to that. So when two people are, you know, if they have any kind of minor argument, you can have a he said, she said, or a he said, he said, or a she said, she said. Um, but when there's three of you, sometimes people are like, you know, Alan and Jeremy will sit me down and say, Ian, you're wrong about this one. And uh, it makes it a little bit easier. I just have to say, well, okay. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm always trying to talk more just about the health of children in a gay relationship. The studies show that they not only do well, they do better in some markers of mental health. They do better with empathy, communication skills, acceptance of diversity. And so, you know, being in a gay relationship, children thrive. Talk a little bit about the impact a thruple uh, could have on a child thus far. You have two children. Yeah, we do. So um, three and a half and one and a half now. We thought a lot about that because we wanted to parent with intention and make sure that our children had the best possible experience. We thought about whether they would be judged or, or teased for having three parents. And we made sure we were in a place where they would be welcomed too. And so far, everyone has just been fantastically enthusiastic about it. There is a lot of research on this subject, but it's very hard to get an accurate picture because the people that tend to present themselves for research are predominantly white and they live in, you know, liberal areas. They tend to be highly educated. And so they're not really representative of, you know, the whole of America, but among those children, research shows that they thrive as well and that they are more open to different family types as one would imagine. And they tend to have better communication skills because, you know, when there's three parents around, there's more communicating to do. So we all have practice. Yeah, more more love, more support, also more financial support, which is great. And um, I, I have a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I have a few therapist friends that are in polyamorous relationships and they're starting to put books out there. They tend to have a little bit more of a clinical slant. Your book though, tell us about that specifically. Um, it's more memoir driven, correct? Yeah, we wanted to basically tell our story of love and the love that we developed for these children and the different adventures and challenges we had to, to have our family. Um, I do break here and there to talk about everything from, you know, the legal landscape of polyamory and raising children to things like the decline in sperm counts worldwide and some other minor topics. But it's really just about the journey of love and the challenges we had in um, having the children. So pretty strange things happened along the way. I bet. And, and also one of the things I've learned in doing sex therapy is that whether someone's in a monogamous relationship, an open relationship, poly, that there's a lot we can learn from the skills that are required to pull off a successful open or polyamorous relationship. I'm often folding that in to more traditional relationships. Um, what are some of the things you would learned in being in a poly relationship? You mean about like uh, communication and, and yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I do think that it actually is really nice to have that third person that is the tiebreaker, like we talked about, because it encourages all of us to sort of say, I'm not just going to take my position. I'm going to listen to the other people that are here, because if, if there is a two to one kind of situation about some issue, whether that's parenting or the decision the family has to make, it, it teaches us to be open to, um, to more input, more feedback. And I think that's great. 
And then it just teaches us to be more communicative, just to really make the effort to sit down with someone and say, these are the issues. Let's talk about this. What are your feelings? Make sure everyone feels heard because there's just a lot of more tr literal triangulation that has to occur for everyone um, to be comfortable with anything that happens going forward. And there's also the additional challenge of, you know, in a two person relationship, a kid can always go and ask the other parent to try to get something the first parent didn't want. Well, that's just multiplied now. Uh, <laughs> so we have to make a special effort to be on the same page about everything. Um, Good luck to parent. <laughs> And I, I thought one of the most adorable parts of all this was the names, um, Daddy, Dada, and Papa. Because I think that's also something my mom asked me about that. Don't they get confused with the names? And I'm like, oh, no, no, they've got that on lockdown. Yeah, the kids know them. Um, I don't all the time. So you have to remember <laughs> that a dad is not necessarily a dad. He's a Papa or something like that. But uh, the kids have got it. And we realize it's probably going to change because I think that um, when my kids graduate from high school and I'm 60, they're probably not going to be calling me Papa. So... Uh, we're curious, but we think it might turn out to be like, um, you know, Daddy Ian, Daddy Jeremy, Daddy Alan. But we'll, we'll let them evolve that for us. Well, well done. And again, I think what's really powerful for me is just the groundbreaking, the groundbreaking relevance of what you're doing. And hopefully that'll open doors for other people because relationships exist just like families exist, which is not always in the traditional sense. People sometimes fall in love with more than one person. And, you know, our culture, our legal system, our educational system, it has to meet the needs of people. People need to not be forced to squeeze into those structures, right? Agreed. Um, you know, marriage used to be about property. Uh, you owned your wife, you know, and uh, people used to be able to assault their spouses. And uh, now we see things like Somerville in Massachusetts is granting more um, legal rights to polyamorous families, which is fantastic. And we learned that our um, birth certificate precedent uh, was discussed sort of up and down the West Coast. California, not surprisingly, sets a lot of precedent when it comes to family law. So we were excited to hear that because it means that more people will have the opportunity to be equal parents um, in unusual relationships going forward. Bam. I love it. Ian Jenkins, author of Three Dads and a Baby. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. Thanks for having me. Stay Have safe, a beautiful everyone. rest of your night. Absolutely. Be well. Bye. That was phenomenal. Oh, you can't hear me out, out this way. I, I got so excited. We're off air now, but I got so excited when I, when I saw the book and looked at what it was about because I'm working with more and more gay couples that are trying to kind of extend their family. And, you know, we, we love seeing role models. We love seeing people that can kind of reflect back what's possible, that it can be done in a loving way. So I'm definitely going to be recommending your book to a lot of people. Super excited to hear yeah. it. Yeah. Have a great night. Thanks for being a part of the show. Yeah. All right, we're back, and uh, now we're going to talk a little bit about alcohol. So one of the things I've been wanting everyone to look at is just the way different things play in their life, you know, what kind of impact they have, what kind of role they play, how you feel before, how you feel during, how you feel after. And look, everything in theory has the possibility of being a coping mechanism, right? And uh, in our culture, we love shaming certain things like sex and food. You're not allowed to use sex and food to improve your mood or to cope or to self-soothe. Yes, you can. You are allowed to eat your feelings. Yes, you are allowed to use sex to cope with your feelings. You're allowed to use whatever process makes sense to you if it doesn't have problematic outcomes. Because again, you know, there's a difference between coping and self-care, right? Coping is whatever it is you choose. And self-care tends to be the ones that have an enhancement in your life or at least, you know, a neutral outcome. So a lot of people, when we talk about alcohol, it, wow, it's a trigger. It brings up a lot because it's a lot to look at. And the question for me is never, are you an addict or not? I think the more important question is, is it helpful? What is the impact of alcohol in my life? And that can, that can shift and change. Um, even people that might use the word addict might not meet full criteria and there might be a period of their life where maybe alcohol can make sense, right? We, we never know. There's no diagnostic test that will prove whether or not you're an alcoholic. Why? Well, addiction's a metaphor. It's, it's a social construct. And what it really comes down to is an attempt to help people live lives that make sense to them and feel good to them. And we all can participate in some of that exploration. So whatever the current coping mechanisms you're using are, ask yourself, are they helping? Are they making things better? Because if they're making things harder, making things more complex, or making things worse, then you make, we might want to take a break. That doesn't mean you can't ever drink again. Uh, it just might mean right now that all that's going on in your life doesn't allow you to have the kind of you know relationship to alcohol that you'd want it to. So maybe circle back another time or maybe don't. You know, alcohol is something that I removed completely from my life last year. Started to see that it just wasn't having a beneficial impact. And I was looking at an article and I wanted to share some of this author's thoughts about the positives and benefits that removing alcohol had on her life and kind of unpack it a little bit. And I think what's really important is this author 
was saying that it wasn't about whether or not she was an alcoholic. She doesn't think in those terms and I don't think in those terms as well. The question for me is always, is said thing, input whatever you want, what kind of impact is that having on you? Is it letting you live the life you want to live, live by your values and integrity or not, you know? Um, everything and anything has the capacity to have a negative impact on us or a positive one. And sometimes it's not even the substance or the, or the object. It's <clears throat> our comfort with acknowledging it or um, even just recognizing that's something that has meaning to us. But what, what this author went, went through was this journey of just being more introspective. So I wanted to break some of these down. The first one was sleep. <clears throat> now, it's always interesting, right? Because I've shared with you before where if I had to you know, prescribe one thing that would help everyone across the board increase their mental health, but also their physical health, I would say sleep. It's the one, one foundational thing upon which we can't really achieve or work on all the other things we need to do if that need isn't met. So sleep is imperative. Alcohol has a negative impact on your sleep. It's a depressant. It can knock you out, but you don't necessarily stay asleep or have a high quality sleep. You don't necessarily go into the cycles you need to, and it's not necessarily going to be as restorative as it could be. So if you're having issues sleeping, it might be your alcohol use. Maybe you're drinking too much, or maybe you're drinking too closely to bed. So I come from a model of harm reduction because again, alcohol use is something that everyone needs to look at their relationship to it. And so the question's always, is there a way to reduce the harm? That's always my first entry point. I don't believe that if something's an issue, you need to remove it because that's not doable for everyone. And it's also not everyone's goal. And we're allowed to have joy and pleasure in our lives. So the first question, is there a way we can decrease the harm that this substance is causing, whether it's drugs, whether it's you know alcohol? And uh, for some, that's it. Just drink less or take breaks uh, or don't drink right before bed. Boom, problem solved. But you want to pay attention to that. Also, just the impact it has on us in social situations. Um, for many that are maybe more introverted or more introspective or not really social or outgoing, the use of alcohol becomes a really helpful buffer. But the bigger question I always pose is make sure, though, that you're in spaces and with people that you want to be with. Because I don't want us using alcohol as a way to help us remain present in situations we don't want to be in, situations that aren't good for us, or around people that just aren't the kind of people we want to be around. The solution there is about actually just not going to those places or spending time with those people. So if you need alcohol to be somewhere, or if you need alcohol to have a good time, then that's because that person or situation isn't in itself a good time, and that's why you need the alcohol. Maybe do something else. Maybe be, Or maybe do that thing with healthier, more available people, right? We shouldn't have to numb ourselves out on alcohol to be able to participate in certain things. Also, this whole idea of drinking can move some people away from their core values and their integrity. And that's the number one thing I saw. Um, I just wasn't acting like the person I wanted to see myself acting like. I wasn't really participating fully in these experiences. I would reflect back on the concert or the party or the dinner, and I didn't remember all of it. And I didn't necessarily really walk away having closely connected or bonded with people. When sober, those connections felt looser or false. It wasn't much I could look back to and kind of take with me. And so it created like a fragility in whatever experience or relationship I was having or relating to in those moments. It just wasn't, it wasn't honest. And that to me, I prefer authenticity always. I'd rather be present somewhere, sloppy, awkward, um, but yet be my full total self than to have a false representation always. Um, and then also finally, it, not making it about whether or not you're an alcoholic and not making it about other people's opinions on it. Not everyone will be happy to hear that you've given up alcohol because you're someone they love to drinking with or because you'll now go to bed earlier or you won't be interested in going to bars. I no longer go to bars. It's not an environment that I enjoy. The value systems that are most meaningful to me don't tend to apply there. I go to bed early. I'm more of a morning person. And so it really reoriented my entire social life. But the meaningful, important people were still there and we still do things. We just do different things. You know, so it really puts a lot of your life and what you kind of prioritized in check. Beautiful thing. So maybe take some time away, see what comes of that. Maybe just kind of be more thoughtful about your its use, you know. All right, y'all, coming up next is uh, DM. So uh, we'll be sliding on in them. And uh, question night, as always, is on our Loveline IG page. So uh, hit that up. Listen to Loveline with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com.
All right, we're back. Question night, as always, is up on our Loveline IG page. You ever heard, you know, red flags, right? We all know that whole thing. <laughs> look out for red flags, look out for red flags. Which, by the way, <laughs> if you really pay a lot of attention, you can find out so much early on. I think due to uh, chemistry and attraction, we tend to ignore those feelings of discomfort or those feelings of disconnection or those realizations that, man, we don't really have as much in common as I would have hoped or would have liked, but God, they're so attractive. Hangs us up, you know? But green lights. Talked about this a long time ago a little bit. What are the green lights? How do we know if there's green lights? And that's a funny thing to ask people. If you said to someone, what are, you know, general relational red flags, they could probably give you some ideas. But if you said, what are the green lights? What are the things that say to you, yeah, this person's ready? Talked about this last week on the show, relational readiness. Really saying, hey, just because I'm single doesn't mean I'm ready for a relationship. Doesn't mean I'll be good for someone because that's what relational readiness is about. Are you gonna be good for someone? Or do you think you're going to make their life harder and more complex? Do you have a lot of unresolved things? Think back to who you were in your prior relationships. Is there a lot of bad behavior on your part? Can't blame your partner. You know what I mean? It's co-created stuff. And it's really good to look back and say, well, what might I be bringing in? What can I work on not doing again? It's really powerful stuff all the time. I mean, because remember, relationships are a mirror being held up, showing us where our work is. Triggers, they're ours. They show us where our work is. Conflict also are a powerful sign and reminder of where we have some more work and healing to do. So take all of that seriously. But what are some of the green lights? Well, let me tell you the first one. And this is something you don't find out until down the road. But if you're in a relationship with someone who's willing to have difficult conversations and talk about being better and doing the work, bam, that's huge. Because you really need someone who's open. We call it mutuality where you both feel like you have an equal amount of power in the relationship, right? Equality, that's eh, never going to happen. There's always going to be someone who likes it a little neater or tidier, let them focus then on cleaning. Someone else who's more interested in, you know, more diversity and food and flavor, great, let them cook. It's not always going to be 50-50, but I worry more about mutuality. Does everyone feel empowered enough in the relationship? Because it's about power. That's what I care about, not equality. Does everyone have the same amount of power? Do they feel like they can equally influence each other? Do they feel like their concerns and their needs will get met? That's what you want to think about. But we get hung up on this equality thing. It'll never be that way. And I don't mean that in terms of gender equality. I'm just talking about in relationship, there will always be higher desiring and lower desiring, people with better abilities and lesser abilities. Let, let certain people do certain things. But again, you want to make sure that mutuality, and that you find out from the beginning. Do they take your opinion into consideration? Do they put themselves out in order to center you and your needs? Um, do they let themselves sometimes get let down and disappointed? Whatever it is, we always want to be looking at, do they afford me the amount of power that they afford themselves? That's the first one. And also trust. A lot of the questions I answer, I assume that the trust is there. Because if not, go right to that. If you don't trust them or, you don't tr or they don't trust you, you don't have a relationship yet. I really believe a relationship only exists within trust. You might still be relating to them. You might still have a label like husband, wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend. But if you don't trust, then you're not in a relationship. Why? Because you're not going to be able to be fully present. You're not going to be able to show up fully as yourself. And so trust has always got to be the first thing you work on. And sometimes we have to say, is our partner worthy of being trusted? And if they are, well, then it's your work. You have to work on trusting them. And it's not their job to constantly do things to make you feel like you can trust them. That's work you have to do. Because what happens then is sometimes we expect our partner to never do things that upset us or make us anxious, and they will and they can, and that's okay. Again, it's okay to do things that makes your partner a little anxious or disappointed as long as it's done in service of something that's within your integrity, right? Where sometimes you'll have to say, you know, and this was really powerful for me. I, I was uh, engaged for a couple years, and uh, I'm plant-based and vegan, and I won't put my money towards animal products. And so, for instance, I had to say things like, I'm cool going and doing the grocery shopping, but I'm not comfortable purchasing animal products. So I'll buy everything that's outside of that, but if you want meat or dairy, that's something you have to go do. I just don't participate in that. Um, that's within my integrity, my spirituality, my feminism and all that. And so that's a non-negotiable. And if that's let someone down because it makes things more complicated, I'm okay with that. And they have to be okay with that. You know what I mean? It's okay to let people down. That's a real bummer. Um, I've also said I only eat at vegan restaurants, you know, and so that's got to be something that's, you know, willing to be accommodated, right? So we don't have to be perfect because our goal in relationships aren't to be liked. They're to be known and to co-create something with a with this person, someone to be a companion on your journey. But we don't have to be twins. We don't have to have the same opinions on everything. We have to have the same levels of integrity, right? We talked about ethical compatibility. You want to be in a relationship with someone whose ethics mimic yours. Otherwise, you'll have a lot of issues, especially if you're, you know, feminist or social justice or really focusing on mental health. You'll want to make sure that they have an ethic of care and compassion and all the other meaningful things. But that trust is the first one. I mean, it's a non-starter if it's not there. So always just start with that. If they're worthy of 
of trust, practice letting go and trusting them. And if they're not, get out, get out. Someone's not worthy of trust. Someone can't be trusted. Bam, time to go, period. Because if they come to you saying, I want to work on that, well, then you can trust them. If, they'll, if they're willing to acknowledge where the work is, that's when trust is in place. Because again, it's not about them being perfect without flaw, but do we trust, right? So always start with that one. And then the following one kind of ties into that. It's about safety. Do I feel safe with them? And I don't mean physical safety. It's emotionally safe. Do I feel like they'll honor and care when I'm wounded? Because remember, it's not always about intention, it's about impact as well. Whether or not you intended to hurt someone, if you do, you take responsibility and accountability for that. <laughs> and that's where safety's built, that they'll do the transformative repair, whatever's needed in order to do that. And then finally, boundaries. Uh, boundaries are something that are best assessed once a boundary's been set, because everyone might have different boundaries around what they think is acceptable, and that kind of more falls under like ethical compatibility. But if you set a boundary, what they do in relationship to that boundary lets you know if they have good boundaries, because part of having good boundaries is how you interact with others. But you have to set one first to be able to assess that. You can't assume they have the same ones you have, because I know mine are very different than a lot of people's, right? So those are some of the emotional you know, red flags we wanna pay attention to in a relationship. We'll constantly be circling back and talking about it. It's a really important topic. But coming up next, we're gonna talk about emotional self-care in relationship to the election. Tons of that we're gonna be talking about. Listen to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right, we're back and uh, I wanted to reflect back on something that came up last week. Um, last week's one of the shows, one of the DMs was someone essentially reaching out asking for permission. They wanted me to essentially support them and advocate for them and give them permission to pass on going to someone's baby shower. And it really made me realize that we have to talk more about boundaries and emotional self-care, right? Because the physical self-care, a lot of people understand. But when we talk about what that would look like in terms of psychology or emotionality, like what is emotional or psychological self-care look like? It winds up being about boundaries and limits. And those are really hard for us to set because we have these things in our culture that we think come before all else. And as, as I was saying is like someone's, you know, if it's your birthday, that is your priority. If it's your wedding, that is your priority. If you are having a child, that is your priority. Now, I don't mean that those that love us and participate in our lives, that it's not important to them. But just because something's a priority to you doesn't mean that that's, that, that should be or somehow becomes more meaningful than what might be going on for someone else, right? And the whole question came up where the person said, Listen, you know, right now we're in the pandemic, so I don't feel safe going to an event that has 30 people. So that's number one. I feel pressure to attend something that doesn't feel safe to me, the, the, the baby shower. Number two, they then want me to also spend money I don't have to spend and spend $150 on a COVID test, which makes sense, but I can't afford that. So now they're wanting me to come to an event that feels unsafe and then spend money I don't have in order to attend this thing that I don't even want to go to that they're making me go to. And it just gets so complex. And I was saying in my answer that we're in a time where people are having... Um, difficulty defending them, protecting their health. So I wanna just start by saying, you don't have to go anywhere that doesn't feel safe. And it is okay to disappoint or let other people down. You don't have to go to a work event. You don't have to go to a birthday party. You don't have to go to a wedding. You don't have to go to a holiday event. You don't have to go to a bridal shower or baby shower if it feels unsafe to you, which by the way, it should to everyone. We're in a pandemic. We shouldn't be going to these things. These things should be rescheduled or canceled. Now is not the time to try to find a way to make those things happen. And people are doing it anyway, and it's dangerous because masks aren't 100%. And at a lot of these events, people aren't wearing them or they're touching the same surfaces or each other. So please say no if there's a group getting together to do something, period. You shouldn't have to defend you supporting your health. I turn down all social events right now. I'm a part of the public health. I, that would be inappropriate for me to be going against what I'm advising, but I'm really serious when I say it's not safe and I'm seeing people do all these things anyway. Number two, you shouldn't have to defend your financial situation. If someone's wanting you to spend money on something, you have a right to say no, which by the way, heads up, if you want people to do that, you should be paying for that. I do believe that if you invite someone to certain events like this that require money, cover it. You don't have a right to expect everyone to have that finance. Look, I'll tell you a story. When I first moved to LA, this was 17 years ago. It was, it was very expensive to get here. <clears throat> I was struggling financially. And I remember going to a dinner party and they had a fixed menu and it was gonna be $75 a head at this dinner party. So my mere presence was already gonna be $75. I didn't have $75 to spend on that meal. Not to mention that the menu had nothing for me because I was vegan, still am. But the expectation 
that I, that we all are in the same financial situation can afford that's problematic. I, I think that that is an issue. I pay for the entire dinner when I have a birthday dinner. I invite everyone to my birthday dinner and I cover it because I think it's a really wrong expectation to assume that they all can handle that or want to. You don't know what their finances are. So I said to the individual last week who wrote the DM, you don't need to go. It's okay to let them down or disappoint them in service of your public health because it's an event. And finances, that's, you know, come on, we're, we're on the whole boat with that stressor. So we want to definitely be very thoughtful. So my whole point was just really looking at the fact that, you know, when we talk about self-care in terms of emotionality or psychology, right, it's about boundaries and limits. And this was coming up for me as well. You know, I'm, I'm thankful and blessed that my work is out there. And so it means a lot of people reach out with a lot of different offers and requests and just real quick, I have a question and I've had to set boundaries around that. You know, I spend my entire week doing clinical practice and the radio show. I'm exhausted after that point. I, I don't have the time or energy to just real quick answer a question, which is never just a real quick question. So I've started having to ignore set limits or say, yeah, if it's quick, uh, because that's my job. That, that, that mental and emotional energy and focus goes to my work week. And on the weekends, I wanna participate as a non-clinical person engaging in all the other areas and identities that are my life, right? And so that's the limit that disappoints people, but we have to be allowed to do that. We have to be allowed to have a moment where the workday is completely done, even if we have more work to do. Turning off your computer at the end of the workday and just being unavailable after seven or 8 p.m. is a needed and healthy emotional boundary. Um, I do that, like done, you know what I mean? So that's that's the first part. You know, again, also looking at the way people have access to us. You don't have to be endlessly available. This meme went around and it upset some people, but I thought it was beautiful where you say, hey, I wanted to see if you had the time or the energy to, to get on the phone or to have this important conversation. And if not, I understand. If you reach out to someone, call out that they might be busy. Don't assume that everyone has the availability you need. We never know what's going on in their life and we really struggle to think outside of ourselves, but just because you need something or you're planning something doesn't mean that they don't have other things going on that day or something more important, you know? And so yeah, some people will have to miss our birthday party because maybe they had something else that was a priority to them that day and your priority isn't more meaningful than theirs, right? But we have to ask people, do you have the time or energy for this right now? Because people are burnt out, they're exhausted. I know I am. Like, I can't take on any more. I can't be any more available than I already am. And I'm having to set limits and disappoint people that want more than I'm available for able to give. And I've had to say to some people, listen, unfortunately, I'm not able to really work you through, walk you through that right now. Please reach out to another supportive friend. Um, you know, I hit up in a few days and I have the bandwidth. It's really hard to say, but we have to be able to do that, right? We don't have to just make ourselves completely available at all times to anything. We're allowed to set those boundaries. So, and that's also what's coming up around the election right, is we get to decide what conversations we're engaging in based on where things go and the, the anxiety is spiking. And so that's kind of how we deal with the self-care around this election is the emotional, psychological. You don't have to have conversations with people that are racist or homophobic. You don't have to watch the news and have minute by minute updates. I've taken a break from the news completely. I have no idea what's going on and I won't until the election. I don't need to know what the numbers are. I don't need to know what's going on. I voted, I've done my part. And I've reached out to friends, make sure they are. And now we get to pause and step away. That's the self-care right now. Step away until election night, which is when we're forced to kind of re-encounter it again, you know? All right, y'all. Coming up next is a question of the night and then some DMs. So still some time to weigh in on that. You're listening to Love Line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com. All right. It's time for question of the night. All right, so election stuff, y'all. According to The Hill, two in three Americans say that this election is a significant source of stress. That's two in three. 76% high number of Democrats say they're more stressed than 2016. Yeah, that's right. We have human rights on the line. 67% of Republicans say they're more stressed than 2016. God bless y'all. And 64% of independents say they're more stressed than in 2016. So the, you know, it's again, the bulk, the bulk of people are uh, absolutely feeling increased stress. <laughs> I mean, it's unparalleled, right? Like, has there ever been a time in our lifetime, not in mine, where an election had so much weight on it? You know, it's, it's, it's truly something. It's truly, truly something. So anyway, we're all in that. 77% of adults 
said that the future of the nation was a source of stress, which was up from 66% last year. And I think that's because we are seeing what's really at stake, right? It's clearer than it's ever been. The Black Lives Matter movement was just so needed and so beautiful and so powerful to remind some people that Black Lives Mattered. Heartbreaking that that even ever needs to be said continues to need to be reminded to some people. Um, and so, yeah, 77, almost 80% of adults said the future of the nation is a source of stress. It needs to be. Amy, who's just voted in, she wants to roll back gay rights. She wants to be part of taking away, you know, abortion uh, as, as part of healthcare, which it's very much a part of healthcare, mental health care. It is, it is a healthcare issue. It's a, it's a human right. Um, so yeah, gays are worried about the ability to still continue to get married. We still have states that allow conversion therapy. Uh, the future of the nation should be a stressor. We, you know, Donald Trump is a, is a racist and a bigot and he's our, our, the leader of the country. It's really made a lot of people afraid of nationalism. I've never in my life heard so many people so, uh, threatened when they see an American flag because to them it represents Trump's America. I'm the same way. I've really lost, I'm embarrassed to be an American. I've really lost faith in being a part of this country because of who we elected and all the damage that this person's done. And so it's very understandable. Uh, 71% of adults said that this is the lowest point in our nation's history that I can remember. Uh, and that's compared to only a half, 50% who said that in 2019. But I agree, 71%, lowest point in our nation's history, I agree. It's so embarrassing. Uh, I'm in a relationship with someone in Canada and I'm constantly shaking my head going, I don't even know how to explain to you. Living in one of the best countries in the world, Canada, which I love, uh, our issues with uh, automatic weapons and rifles and our gun laws, those are really ridiculous, right? The fact that, you know, like I'm saying, people's human rights are actually being debated and on the line. They're literally, Canada's looking down at us. You know, we're the armpit of North America to them. Like, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I literally don't know how to explain this to you. You know what I mean? Like the values that arise out of what's going on right now are really disheartening. So uh, 87% of students, 87, so about 90% of students said that this election was more stressful than any exam they could take. Again, rooted in whether or not individuals will have their rights. That's what that stress is mostly driven by, fear of violence, fear of having their rights taken away. It's horrifying. According to the Harris, 46% of adults said that they will be eating junk food the night of the election to cope with the stress. Me too, babes. I'll be eating my feelings. Eat your feelings. Get that food ready. Whatever you can use to take the sharp edges down or distract or check out for a few minutes or put a smile on your face is what we're going to be doing. Election night's going to be a funky night. 42% said they'll be ordering pizza and staying in. God bless it. I'm working all night. Um, I'm, I'm there for my clients that have scheduled those special sessions to try to really process what's going on. Same thing on Wednesday. Um, but for those that are able to just check out and zone out, yo, props. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some new cocktails named, you know. Uh, 49% of people, almost half, said that they'd be drinking. Very understandable at a time like this, that we're turning to whatever we can. That'll decrease our anxiety and make us better able to really be present to what's happening. It's really horrifying to some people. You know, people wondering if, again, they'll have their health care, the ability to marry. Uh, they're just their human rights valued. Uh, 26%. Here's where I love the breakdown. So what is it that they'll be drinking this 49% you ask? Well, I've got the answer for you. 26 said they're going to the beer, which I've never been a beer person. I just don't get it. I just don't. Uh, 23% said wine. That was my jam. I was a white wine drinker. I don't drink anymore, but that was, that was the jam. 15 are going for liquor. Kind of surprised by that. I thought more people would be like, it's going to be a night of shots, going for the liquor, pulling out the top shelf. <laughs> I've earned it. Um, 46%, almost half overall, said that they're going to watch the election live. Yes. While 53 said they won't be able to take the stress of watching it live. Yo, whatever you need to do. Again, unprecedented times. <laughs> uh, I'm really curious to see what kind of response we'll get, though, as the numbers roll in uh, on Wednesday morning. It's going to be a really rough time for people Tuesday and then into Wednesday. So again, prepare ahead of time, really uh, have what you need to have, have access to the people you need to have access to. And if you need the day off, take the day off, you know, employers give people that time. If they call in, that's a mental health issue. I, I want people to be able to say election stress and for all employers to be like, I get it. Take care of yourself, please. We're, this is a big deal. All right, y'all coming up next DMS. We'll be back in two minutes of the two minute promise. You're listening to love line with Dr. Chris on the new channel Q and radio.com.